The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What thou lovest well remains, the rest is dross. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage, whose world, or mine, or theirs, or is it of none? First came the scene, then thus the palpable Elysium, though it were in the halls of hell. What thou lovest well is thy true heritage. What thou lovest well shall not be reft from thee. The end. Hello. He was born in 1885 in a small mining town in Idaho and died in 1972 in Venice, Italy. In those 87 years, he changed the face of American poetry. A restless, tireless advocate for his artistic views and for the authors who shared them, he also led an extremely eventful life, clamoring for change, devolving into madness, attacking his own country, and living, for a while, as a prisoner of the United States Army, who kept him in an outdoor cage. His name was Ezra Pound, and his impact on American literature is as hard to understand as it is to overstate. We'll be taking up the case of Ezra Pound today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I know what you're thinking. Where's the Halloween episode? Where is it, Jack? Where? Where? Well, I can tell you. I had a few setbacks, a few changes to the schedule. I spent a week in a sickbed struggling to get the Karl Marx episode out to make sure you did not miss your weekly fix of History of Literature podcast goodness. But the illness laid me up and delayed things for a bit. I could barely move. I'm back now. Not quite 100%, but getting close. Thank you, as always, for your concern. And thank you for your patience. I meant to have a Halloween episode this week and another one next week because I love October and I love Halloween. We might do two episodes next week. How about that? No promises, but <laughs> they're still in the works. They've just had to wait for our special guests who were dealing with some setbacks themselves. Life happens, people. Speaking of life happening, an awful lot of life happened to our subject today, Ezra Pound. Not many authors were arrested for treason and lived in a cage. It's just an extremely sad situation, and yet it's part of a fascinating life and a wild mind and just a, a great story. A story with poetry at its heart, a poetic heart, for better or worse. Very fitting for Ezra Pound, since he himself had a poetic heart, if anyone did. It's why we forgive his sins, I think. For all his vile ideas, he did a lot of great things too, and he himself wrote some very good poetry and had some very influential ideas. We'll hear all about it today. And speaking of life happening for a second time, we received another comment from our friend Maxime in Manila. Remember Maxime from last episode? He wrote in after our Gabriel Garcia Marquez episode to tell us about how he played that episode for his wife. Well, 
After we read his comment, he wrote back, thanking us for reading the comment aloud on the air, <laughs> whatever this is, in the podcast, and telling us that he played that episode for his wife, too. I love hearing these stories about the podcast making its way to speakers and headphones and car radios around the world and helping people to rediscover their passion for literature and helping people to connect with their loved ones sometimes and with strangers sometimes. So let's hear from Maxime again. Hi, Jack. Thank you for reading my feedback on your episode about Gabo. When I let my wife hear you reading my comments, she was superbly exalted. My two teenage daughters... 12 and 14, named Math and Pi, respectively, were ecstatic too when I replayed it to them. They were happy for their father, who is so smitten with literature. And me too, of course. You can just imagine the joy I felt when my idol appreciated my feedback and forever included it in that special episode where Karl Marx was featured in the podcast. Of all writers you have featured, I have the privilege of being mentioned together with this great philosopher. You are right. Sometimes we are so caught up with the bird and fail to see the sky that allows it to exist freely. Marx gave us that glimpse and gave me that opportunity to have a wider view of perspectives. Continue on, Jack. Let's have coffee sometime here in Manila. Well, Maxime, the pleasure and the privilege and the honor are all mine. I will look forward to that coffee the next time I am back in Manila. And in the meantime, I hope math and pie... How amazing is that? What what a great pair of names. I hope Math and Pi continue to enjoy their enthusiastic and generous and large-souled father. We should all be so smitten. Enjoy the journey. Ezra Pound, after this. Grownups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. One of the questions I always had about Ezra Pound's origins was how in the world he ever became what he became. How did this guy born in a small town in Idaho, of all places, end up as one of the leading advocates for American poetry in Paris and London of the 1910s and 1920s. Why poetry? Why Europe? Why him? 
It turns out to be less mysterious than I thought, although he was indeed from a lumber and mining family whose fortunes had taken them to Idaho briefly. They were actually closer to the kind of aristocratic class you might expect for someone with Pound's training and education and proclivities. On both sides, his ancestors went back almost to the Mayflower. On his mother's side, the first immigrant was a Wadsworth, a Puritan who arrived by ship in 1632. On his father's side, the first immigrant was John Pound, a Quaker, who arrived in 1650. That gives his family 250 years or so to sink their roots into America. That's a lot of Americanness for a young boy like Ezra to inherit. And indeed, although he was born in Idaho, he only lived there 18 months before his mother got tired of the frontier life and the provinciality of Idaho and relocated the family back to New York. A couple of years later, his father found work in Pennsylvania, and the family moved into a big house. Pound started going to fancy schools run by Quakers. When he was 11, he published a poem in the local newspaper. It showed an early taste for politics, rhyme, and formal meter. Actually, it was a limerick about the doomed candidacy of William Jennings Bryan. Quote, There was a young man from the West. He did what he could for what he thought best. But election came round, he found himself drowned, and the papers will tell you the rest. Pound spent these years, <laughs> in addition to writing poems, Pound spent these years getting an intense military school education with lots of Latin and was taken on a three-month tour of Europe by his family, one of several he would take in the next few years. His taste for poetry guided him toward an early romance, too, to his first serious romance, which, as it happened, was with a fellow poet, Hilda Doolittle, also known to the world now as H.D. They met at the University of Pennsylvania, which Pound had entered when he was just 16. Ezra was smitten with Hilda. He wrote 25 poems for her and called the collection Hilda's Book. He asked her father for permission to marry her. Her father was an astronomy professor, which you might expect would give him a bit of vision, of the cosmos, but no, he was incredibly earthbound and local. He refused to allow the marriage, calling Pound a nomad. He wasn't exactly wrong about that. In any case, ten years later, Hilda joined Pound in Paris, where he was pushing for a new style of poetry, imagism, he called it. She agreed with his poetic principles, and she turned out to be one of imagism's greatest practitioners. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back in Pennsylvania, Pound dated some other women and proposed to one of them, who also turned him down. He went on another tour of Europe, and when he returned this time, he resolved that he wanted to immerse himself in languages and poetry. As he put it, I resolved that at 30 I would know more about poetry than any man living, that I would know what was accounted poetry everywhere, what part of poetry was indestructible, what part could not be lost by translation, and, scarcely less important, what effects were obtainable in one language only and were utterly incapable of being translated. In this search I learned more or less nine foreign languages. I read Oriental stuff in translations, I fought every university regulation, and every professor who tried to make me learn anything except this, or who bothered me with requirements for degrees." Parts of quotes, who bothered me with, quote, requirements for degrees, end quote. Pound graduated 
and went on to an advanced course of study in Romance languages. Along the way, he was reading about poetry, Chinese poetry, and his essay on the Chinese character as a medium for written poetry, an essay on the scholarship of Ernest Fenelosa, is still readable and inspiring today, or at least it has the power to inspire this humble podcaster who took it with him to Taiwan many years ago and who treated it as a key to understanding the Chinese language, poetry in general, and life. It is a central text in my own development, and I can still remember reading it and thinking that Ezra Pound was a kind of kindred spirit and that the knowledge and ideas that interested the young Ezra Pound were the kind of knowledge and ideas that interested the young me. What were these ideas? We'll get there in a minute when it comes time to talk about imagism. But now we're still in 1906. Pound is not yet 30. He's in fact only 21 on his march toward 30, trying to accomplish his goal of knowing more about poetry than any man alive. He gets some scholarship money to write about jesters in Spanish plays, of all things. He travels to Madrid to study in the libraries there, including a library in the royal palace. He happens to be standing standing outside, standing outside the library, taking some kind of break from his studies, when an assassination attempt was made on the king. You know, just one of those things that happens all the time. You're studying all day, you stagger out into the sunlight, and you happen to be <laughs> to find yourself in a mob that's trying to kill a political leader. He was worried that people would think he was one of the anarchists who had attempted the assassination, so he fled the country. He arrived in Paris and immediately went to the Sorbonne to hear some more lectures on poetry. <laughs> I love this young Ezra Pound. <laughs> his hair shock red it's like his brain was on fire after Paris he went to London this is a guy with a passion for poetry he was still only 21 he returned to America where he was becoming too big to contain he wrote some book reviews and attended some lectures but he was kicked out of lecture after lecture hall one of them after noisily winding his watch throughout the discourse which he thought was boring <laughs> So lecture on Shakespeare. He, <laughs> uh, Ezra. He got a job in Indiana as a teacher, but he was kicked out of his boarding house after a chorus girl was stranded in a snowstorm and Pound offered her, quote, tea and his bed, end quote. The next morning he claimed that he had slept on the floor, but he was not believed and he was ejected from the conservative city. He was glad to leave what he called, quote, the sixth, sixth circle of hell, end quote. From there, Pound went to Europe. Sailing from New York, he earned some money in Gibraltar as a tour guide for Americans. He moved to Venice and lived over a bakery and wrote his first book of poetry, A Lume Spento, with tapers quenched, which follows a line from Dante. This is one of the great what-ifs in American literature, A Lume Spento, Pound had been earning $15 a week as a guide in Gibraltar. By the time he got to Venice, he had $80 in his pocket. He spent eight of those dollars on his book of poems, getting it published. It was a big risk. He was only able to have 15, or sorry, 150 copies printed. And when he saw the print run and read through the volume, he got scared that the poems were no good, and he almost dumped the whole production with all 150 copies into a canal. 
Instead, he sent them around to critics. He didn't get the reception he wanted from the American critics, but he did manage to get a favorable review in a London newspaper where the reviewer called it, quote, wild and haunting stuff, absolutely poetic, original, imaginative, passionate, and spiritual, end quote. Pound moved to London and on the strength of the review, talked a bookseller into displaying the copies of his collection. There were hardly any of them, but he made a bit of a splash, and he never looked back. This was 1908. He would spend the next 12 years in London, promoting his poetry and advocating noisily for his ideas. He was an infectious, enthusiastic, somewhat, somewhat eccentric character who started to get noticed. By 1920, when authors like T.S. Eliot and Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald started to arrive in Europe, he was there waiting. We'll have the rest of the Ezra Pound story after this. Pound was not a man who was inclined to indifference. He hated what he hated and loved what he loved. To understand him, we have to look at the objects of both. By 1912 or so, it was becoming clear what kind of poetry he hated and what he was trying to do instead. He had found allies, W.B. Yeats, Ford Maddox Ford, Richard Aldington, and his old paramour from Philadelphia, H.D. He called himself an imagist and promoted imagism as a kind of a movement. The principles were, number one, direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective. Two, to use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation. Three, as regarding rhythm, to compose in the sequence of the musical phrase, not in sequence of a metronome. What do those mean? Number two is very clear. Use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation. This is where we see the seedlings of his eventual camaraderie with James Joyce of the Dubliners and Ernest Hemingway, of course. But what word might we be talking about? What words? It seems so self-evident now. Who would use words that don't contribute to the presentation? I'll elaborate on this principle because it also helps explain the other two. The words that he's talking about are flowery words, poetic words, beautiful words, words used for their own sake, words used to showcase the poet's talent or the powers of the poet's observational skills or the depths of their emotion, words that poets who sit down and think, today I will show I am a great poet rather than focus on the poem itself and what it's trying to do and what it's trying to say. And poetry that gets tangled up in language rather than real life or real things, things that matter in and of themselves, whether those are concrete or intangible. They are not unnecessarily ornate. They are solid and real. That points us toward principle number three, Use the sequence of the musical phrase, not the sequence of a metronome. What's the difference? A metronome distracts. We hear the poet's skills rather than the words and ideas of the poem. A musical phrase, on the other hand, is suited for its purpose. It conveys the feeling 
independently of the words. It's, as Robert Frost said, the sound of a conversation heard through a door. It's the storm of Beethoven, the beauty of Chopin, the disjunction of Stravinsky. But it's not surfaces only. It's not objects only. It will depend on objects, but it's not limited to objects. The poem can be subjective. It can be a person's sentient grasp of the thing. But the thing, and thing here in Pound's phrase is in quotes, the thing is central. It's not buried in riddle or submerged in poetry with a capital P. It's there. It's plain. It's unadorned. It's real. And it's vivid and actual and alive. Recently, in our episode on Ernest Hemingway, I mentioned that most writing guys will tell you to distrust adverbs. But Hemingway noted that Ezra Pound had taught him to distrust adjectives, too. A lot of this is coming from Pound's view of Chinese and the Chinese character. One of the things he loved about Chinese is that the ideograms, the Chinese characters, were formulated of little pictures that translated to real-life things. The character for horse is a sort of shorthand, an abbreviated picture of a horse that has since been simplified but is still visible. You can see the legs and the mouth. The word for sun is still there, recognizable as a sun. The word for tree still looks like a tree. And the word for east is a sun behind the tree. That's what Pound loved. East as a sun coming up behind a tree, like the east itself, a real thing. He marveled at the power of this and lamented that English, with its alphabet, didn't have anything comparable. In Chinese grammar, too, he would say that a person in English is a farmer. In Chinese, they say, the person farms. Person farms, noun, verb. There's no need to say is there's no need to make a definition out of what is essentially a noun and an action. Person farms. It's more direct than person is a farmer. Again, here in Pound's view, English falls short, but it can still find some meaning in these examples and replicate them after a fashion. It can do so by following the three principles of imagism, which I described earlier, and by avoiding certain other problems. Here are some don'ts that Pound warned against. I'm going to read this. It's kind of a lengthy section of Pound's views on poetry because, first of all, it's so classic. But it's also a great way of understanding Pound. You will know exactly what he's trying to do in his poetry after hearing this. It's some lessons on how to write poetry and how to approach poetry, how to be a poet, and, I would say, how to live a life. You will see what Pound's trying to do and why, and why he became the great advocate of James Joyce of the Dubliners and the poetry of Robert Frost and W.B. Yeats and H.D. and T.S. Eliot and all the modernists who adopted their views and followed their example, and the great prose stylings of Ernest Hemingway and all those who followed him. You will see that Pound, in putting all this in print in 1913, anticipated and guided and formed much of what came after. And after that, we'll tell you what happened to Ezra Pound as his mind turned from poetry to the world and economics and two world wars crashed his brain and he wound up living a life of tragic mistakes and near madness. The man who wanted to know more about poetry than any person alive may very well have achieved that goal 
who's to say exactly. But somewhere along the way, his brain broke. It failed him. He chose poorly and for poor reasons. But first, let's hear his list of don'ts. From when he was young, in 1913, and full of vim and vigor, and ready to tackle the world and teach the world what it needed to know about poetry. A few don'ts. He starts, an image is that which presents an intellectual and emotional complex in an instant of time. I use the term complex rather in the technical sense employed by the newer psychologists, though we may not agree absolutely in our application. It is the presentation of such a complex instantaneously which gives that sense of sudden liberation that sense of freedom from time limits and space limits, that sense of sudden growth, which we experience in the presence of the greatest works of art. It is better to present one image in a lifetime than to produce voluminous works. All this, however, some may consider open to debate. The immediate necessity is to tabulate a list of don'ts for those beginning to write verses. I cannot put all of them into mosaic negative. To begin with, consider the three propositions, demanding direct treatment, economy of words, and the sequence of the musical phrase, not as dogma. Never consider anything as dogma, but as the result of long contemplation, which, even if it is someone else's contemplation, may be worth consideration. Pay no attention to the criticism of men who have never themselves written a notable work, Consider the discrepancies between the actual writing of the Greek poets and dramatists and the theories of the Greco-Roman grammarians concocted to explain their meters. Language. This is the first section. Language. Use no superfluous word, no adjective which does not reveal something. Don't use such an expression as, quote, dim lands of peace, end quote. It dulls the image. It mixes an abstraction with the concrete. It comes from the writers not realizing that the natural object is always the adequate symbol. Go in fear of abstractions. Do not retell in mediocre verse what has already been done in good prose. Don't think any intelligent person is going to be deceived when you try to shirk all the difficulties of the unspeakably difficult art of good prose by chopping your composition into line lengths. What the expert is tired of today, the public will be tired of tomorrow. Don't imagine that the art of poetry is any simpler than the art of music, or that you can please the expert before you have spent at least as much effort on the art of verse as an average piano teacher spends on the art of music. Be influenced by as many great artists as you can but have the decency either to acknowledge the debt outright or to try to conceal it. Don't allow influence to mean merely that you mop up the particular decorative vocabulary of someone or two poets whom you happen to admire. A Turkish war correspondent was recently caught red-handed, babbling in his dispatches of dove-gray hills, or else it was pearl-pale. I cannot remember. Use either no ornament or good ornament. <laughs> That's the end of that section. As a manifesto, this is very good. There's enough 
escape hatches, not to be too dogmatic, but it's very clear, very persuasive, very direct. Doesn't it make you want to go out and write poetry, to turn your hand to writing poetry, to follow these few principles and to make something as good as you can make it? (laughs) The next section may do the same. It's called Rhythm and Rhyme. Let the candidate fill his mind with the finest cadences he can discover, preferably in a foreign language. This is for rhythm. His vocabulary must, of course, be found in his native tongue. So that the meaning of the words may be less likely to divert his attention from the movement. For example, Saxon charms, Hebridean folk songs, the verse of Dante, and the lyrics of Shakespeare. If he, the poet, can dissociate the vocabulary from the cadence... Let him dissect the lyrics of Goethe coldly into their component sound values, syllables long and short, stressed and unstressed, into vowels and consonants. It is not necessary that a poem should rely on its music, but if it does rely on its music, that music must be such as will delight the expert. Let the neophyte know assonance and alliteration, Rhyme immediate and delayed, simple and polyphonic, as a musician would expect to know harmony and counterpoint and all the minutiae of his craft. No time is too great to give to these matters, or to any one of them, even if the artist seldom have need of them. Don't imagine that a thing will go in verse just because it's too dull to go in prose. Don't be viewy. That's in quotes, viewy, V-I-E-W-Y. Don't be viewy. Leave that to the writers of pretty little philosophic essays. Don't be descriptive. Remember that the painter can describe a landscape much better than you can, and that he has to know a good deal more about it. When Shakespeare talks of the dawn in a russet mantle clad, he presents something which the painter does not present. There is in this line of his nothing that one can call description. He presents. Consider the way of the scientists rather rather than the way of an advertising agent for a new soap. The scientist does not expect to be acclaimed as a great scientist until he has discovered something. He begins by learning what has been discovered already. He goes from that point onward. He does not bank on being a charming fellow personally. He does not expect his friends to applaud the results of his freshman class work. Freshmen in poetry are unfortunately not confined to a definite and recognizable classroom. They are all over the shop. Is it any wonder the public is indifferent to poetry? Don't chop your stuff into separate I am's. Don't make each line stop dead at the end and then begin every next line with a heave. Let the beginning of the next line catch the rise of the rhythm wave unless you want a definite longish pause. In short, behave as a musician, a good musician, when dealing with that phrase of your art, sorry, with that phase of your art, which has exact parallels in music. The same laws govern and you are bound by no others. Naturally, your rhythmic structure should not destroy the shape of your words or their natural sound or their meaning. It is improbable that at the start you will be able to get a rhythm structure strong enough to affect them very much, though you may fall a victim 
to all sorts of false stopping due to line ends and caesure. The musician can rely on pitch and the volume of the orchestra. You cannot. The term harmony is misapplied in poetry. It refers to simultaneous sounds of different pitch. There is, however, in the best verse, a sort of residue of sound, which remains in the ear of the hearer and acts more or less as an organ bass. A rhyme must have in it some slight element of surprise if it is to give pleasure. It need not be bizarre or curious, but it must be well used, if used at all. That part of your poetry, which strikes upon the imaginative eye of the reader, will lose nothing by translation into a foreign tongue. That which appeals to the ear can reach only those who take it in the original. Consider the definiteness of Dante's presentation, as compared with Milton's rhetoric. Read as much of Wordsworth as does not seem too unutterably dull. If you want the gist of the matter, go to Sappho, Catullus, Villon, Hein when he is in the vein, Gautier when he is not too frigid, or, if you have not the tongues, seek out the leisurely Chaucer. Good prose will do you no harm, and there is good discipline to be had by trying to write it. Translation is likewise good training, if you find that your original matter wobbles when you try to rewrite it. The meaning of the poem to be translated cannot wobble. If you are using a symmetrical form, don't put in what you want to say and then fill up the remaining vacuums with slush. Don't mess up the perception of one sense by trying to define it in terms of another. This is usually only the result of being too lazy to find the exact word. To this clause, there are possibly exceptions. The first three simple prescriptions will throw out nine-tenths of all the bad poetry now accepted as standard and classic, and will prevent you from many a crime of production. <laughs> Those are his don'ts. In the Rhythm and Rhyme section, Pound wrote poetry according to these principles. His famous early works like Hugh Selwyn Mauberly and Homage to Sextus Propertius put these into practice along with his famous short poem, In a Station of the Metro, which still stands as maybe the greatest example of imagism in English. The entire poem reads, The apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough. That is just a beautiful poem. You can get lost in a poem like that. He helped edit T.S. Eliot's masterpiece, The Wasteland. He began his own masterwork, The Cantos, an ambitious, if somewhat uneven project that he worked on for much of the rest of his life. And, disastrously, he turned to politics. He became obsessed with money and economics and the international banking system, and his views were borderline conspiratorial and explicitly anti-Semitic. He found common ground with Italian fascists and wrote anti-Semitic articles for Italian newspapers. He wrote letters railing against Roosevelt for representing American Jewish interests and signed the letters Heil Hitler. As World War II raged, Pound recorded anti-American propaganda for Mussolini's radio stations. He praised the Third Reich and claimed that the English were a slave race governed by the Rothschilds. 
He was broke now, broken, broken, reading these poisonous and wildly speculative scripts over the radio in Rome, almost his only source of income. As the Allied troops began to fight their way up the peninsula, he traveled on foot ahead of them, spending a night in an air raid shelter in Bologna, walking to Verona, poor, dirty, exhausted. He was apprehended by armed partisans, and he told them that Mussolini was a misguided but well-intentioned person. On the day Germany surrendered, Pound said that Hitler was a Joan of Arc, a saint. Pound was now a prisoner of American troops who recalled his voice on the radio as being like the sound of a hornet buzzing in a jar. They put him in a cage like the ones that they held other prisoners of war in. They had a concrete floor and steel bars. It was open to the air and the elements and to the eyes and ears of onlookers. Before his arrest, Pound had stuffed a copy of Confucius and a volume of Chinese poetry into his pockets. His plan was to read and write. After two and a half weeks, Pound broke down from the strain. He would live another 27 years in and out of mental hospitals, eventually landing in Venice. He retained his mad passion for poetry and continued to write it. The picture we have of him is one of a broken man, confused about his past, still knowing a lot about poetry, but maybe not with the same grasp of reality that he had had in his earlier years. He was a figure to be pitied, and he was pitied. He was a figure to be hated, and he was hated too. Now we have his poetry to sort through. There's a lot there, 800 pages of the cantos, his personal journey through good and evil, not as well organized or comprehensible as one might hope. It's steeped in all his passions, Greek mythology, Italian history, ancient China and Egypt, economics and banking, and his own memories and experiences. Some of it is very rich. It's not a surprise that there is genius among the madness, and vice versa. There's no one else like Ezra Pound. For a while, it seemed that Pound was everywhere. It's hard to find an author he didn't entangle himself with, either personally or in print. He recognized literary talent and advocated for it like very few ever have. He himself moved people forward and guided them and inspired them and forced them to resist. On the banquet table of 20th century American letters, his is a hefty plate, though he's more than just a single dish. He's also the seasoning, the salt and the pepper, the one who's jumping onto every plate and dissolving himself in every soup. We can imagine a world without him, but not literature as we know it today. For better or worse, we're stuck with Pound, and we can learn from his mistakes. It's the final irony of Pound, the great hater, the one who filled his manifesto with as many don'ts as do's, himself has given us a set of do's and don'ts. We can learn from his example what to do, and how to be, and what not to do, and how not to be. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, short and sweet. For Ezra Pound, who was short but 
Not sweet. Prickly. Short and prickly. What a man and what a life. I had to leave a lot out. He's the kind of guy who moved from Paris because a man at a dinner party tried to stab him. And Pound viewed that as a sign that <clears throat> it was time to move. Makes my own life seem a little meager. Not that I'm looking to be stabbed or anything, but a few clear signals might help once in a while. I'm the kind of guy who moves because my lease runs out and I forget to renew it. So the landlord finds someone new to wear my clothes and sleep in my bed and call himself Jack Wilson. If it's happened once, it's happened a thousand times. I'm Jack Wilson, or one of the Jack Wilsons. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.